Welcome back to At The Bar, a spirited conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. I'm Inez Stepman from Independent Women's Forum, and here with my colleague, Jennifer Becerra's from Independent Women's Law Center. Hey, Inez. Well, it's election season, so today we're going to be talking about the electoral college system for electing our president. Contrary to what some people might believe, in the United States, we don't actually have one massive national popular election. We have 51 mini elections that take place in the 50 states and the District of Columbia all on the same day. And the winner of our presidential election is the candidate who wins the aggregate of these separate elections in what has come to be known as the Electoral College. So unfortunately, the Electoral College has had fewer and fewer defenders in recent years. It's It's been trendy now, um, going on at least a decade to call the Electoral College somehow anti-democratic or racist or outdated. Um, a September 2023 poll by... Uh, Sorry about that. Um, by the Pew Research Center showed that 65% of American adults uh, say that we should replace the Electoral College system with a national popular vote. And that sounds really good to a lot of people. But wh why do you think that um, people have turned so badly on the Electoral College and the system that we have been using to elect presidents? I think it's a couple of reasons. I think the primary reason is just basic civic ignorance. Um, they don't teach it in the middle schools anymore the way they used to. They don't teach our federalist system. They don't really teach the building blocks of the Electoral College. Um, and they don't explain really to, to our youth why we have it. So people grow up thinking, you know, that the person who gets the most votes should win. And that's that would be the most fair. They're not they're not grounded in the political theory behind it, which is essentially, um, you know, the idea is to prevent the tyranny of the majority, right? So um, there's a famous quote, I don't know if it's apocryphal or, for, or was ever actually said, but um, I think it's attributed to Ben Franklin, where he says, pure democracy is like two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for lunch. And we don't want a situation where the majority, whatever that majority is, a political majority, a racial majority, a geographic majority, um, we do not want the, the strongest voting bloc to be able to oppress or discriminate against um, the minority of the country. So our founders created a system that allows the public to vote in popular democratic state-by-state -state elections, but it forces candidates um, to win votes outside of their, of their base, basically, in order to win, to put together a coalition. Um, and, and that's something that when you explain it to people, they say, oh, okay, I get it, that makes sense. But the truth is that most people don't grow up learning that basic principle anymore. Um, I think the other reason why people are turning against the Electoral College just has to do with some recent elections where the person who won, quote unquote, won the popular vote didn't win in the Electoral College and therefore didn't win the presidency. Um, the most recent examples being Donald Trump in, two, in uh, 2016 and George Bush in 2000. 
And so because that happens twice and in recent times and the victors were Republicans, the vast majority of Democrats think that it's unfair because their candidate didn't win. The truth is it could have happened the other way around. Um, it, the Electoral College doesn't favor Republicans. Um, but because it happened twice that way, most of uh, many people, I would say most people who are Democrats now want to get rid of it. Anyway, here to delve deeper into the electoral college system and to, you know, get a little bit more into the nitty gritty of the arguments for and against are two election experts, Maya Naranja and Michael Maybach. Maya's special counsel for external affairs at First Liberty Institute and a visiting fellow with Independent Women's Law Center. Um, and Michael is a distinguished fellow with Save Our States, an organization that's dedicated to defending the electoral crisis. Thanks, Michael. Maya, um, um, thank you very much for joining at the bar today. Thanks, Inez and Jennifer. Good to see you. And welcome, Michael. <laughs> Delighted to be with you, ladies. Yes, thank you. Maya, let's start with you. Could you just give us a quick rundown on how the Electoral College actually works? What is the procedure? We go to the polls on Election Day. We cast ballots for what we think is the candidate of our choice. What is actually happening and how does it all work? So where can you find the Electoral College? You got to go to the U.S. Constitution. It's all there in Article 2. It sets forth this process. And it happens, it's going to happen in December of next year, where we have these group of electors who are chosen by the states. And the, the number of them, they're 538 total. And it's each state gets how many that they have U.S. senators and U.S. House of Representatives. Each, each of our parts of the country gets three votes. Um, at least. And the ones that have more population, more members of Congress um, in the House of Representatives will get more. So then they go and in each in their home places, home state or D.C., go and cast their ballots. Um, it, you know, the voters do. And they pick their electors. Um, and each state has their own process. You, you, you have some states that have winner take all, most of them. But Maine and Kansas uh, Maine and Nebraska have a different process because it's it's by state election laws. So that, that's the, the second process that will happen in December where the electors then will meet and they will cast their ballots and select in their states. And each, um, each vote will be sent to Washington, to the U.S. Uh, Congress, and they will meet and calculate all of these um, and count them and make it official so that a, a president will be inaugurated that January. And how many out of the 538, the Constitution says the majority. So that will be 270 of the 538 electors, at least, um, to meet that minimum. And in the case that no candidate receives that much, they'll send it to what's called a contingent election. And it's kind of a, uh, a, a different process where the, the, the ballots that they have don't um, show a winner. So the House will pick the president and the Senate will pick the vice president. So this is the electoral college process that will take place in December, which is an additional feature that our founders put in there to protect um, voting rights. Yeah, so um, let's, let's turn to you, Michael. 
why, what were the reasons at the Constitutional Convention? Um, what were the arguments surrounding how the president ought to be elected? Uh, what were some of the, like, for example, addressing some of the concerns that Jennifer brought up in the introduction, right, about pure democracy or the power of the majority? Um, how did they settle on this electoral college system? It's a good question. Um, when I give my talk on the electoral college, I begin with a painting of Socrates taking the hemlock. And I asked students, for example, what's going on? The elected assembly by majority vote voted to kill the old man for asking questions. Do we believe in free speech and liberty? Yes. Do we believe that elected majorities can become tyrannical? Yes. This is the mindset of the founders. They, they were for liberty and they feared majority tyranny. We have to understand they were not majoritarians. In Philadelphia in 1787, Madison, when he arrives in May for the convention, he writes in his notes, the issue will be representation. They had nine states with small populations. Delaware, for example. Uh, Georgia had one-tenth the population of Virginia. Virginia... Pennsylvania, New York, and Massachusetts, which included Maine at the time, were the most populous states. Um, Ronald Reagan reminds us that the states wrote the Constitution, and the nine states were not going to have the four most populous states control everything. As a matter of fact, Rhode Island did not send delegates to Philadelphia so much they feared Jimmy Madison and the Virginians were coming to town to take over the Republic although they did ratify the Constitution. Fortunately, all 13 states did in conventions. So we have this, um, in effect, aggregation of elections. What I like to say to people that say, well, I'm for democracy, I say, well, I have a good deal for you. We have 50 democratic elections, and then we aggregate the totals. And that's what right. we do. We're much more democratic than virtually all of Europe, Canada, Japan, et cetera. Of the European Union's 27 countries, only two have a national popular vote, Cyprus and France. The other 25. So one of the things I do is I show a picture of the House of Commons in Great Britain. What is this? It's the House of Commons. It's also the Electoral College of Great Britain. Churchill was never on the ballot of all Englishmen, only elected by this body. So we're much more democratic than almost any Republican republic around the world. And so... Let's, let's turn back to, to Maya here for a moment. Um, and the, the vast majority of our history, as opposed to uh, the House of Commons or anything else in, in the UK, uh, usually these things go together, right? The popular vote and the electoral college. But they have split a few times. Uh, Jennifer mentioned a couple of them, right? Recently, we remember, of course, Trump in 2016. And then uh, for, for those of us who are not Gen Z, we remember that uh, the 2000 election of the election of the hanging chads in Florida, right? Um, that where the popular vote and the electoral college also split in favor of George W. Bush. Um, there have been other examples, Benjamin Harrison in 1888, um, Rutherford B. Hayes in 1876, um, John Quincy Adams in 1824, so-called corrupt bargain uh, before that threw it to the House of Representatives. So um, what is the procedure and how have these um, these splits been 
sort of uh, characterized by one side or the other because the Republican Party has not been the only uh, the only one benefited by a split like this or or a confusion like this in American history. So how have these splits between the popular vote and the Electoral College uh, been characterized by political parties, both on the winning and losing side in American history? Well, you know, typically the normal reaction is if you lose, the, the system must be wrong. Um, and, and we should go back and see, you know, look at the system as itself and see how it works out and plans. And, you know, to, to uh, a great way to better understand our American system of the Electoral College is to look at America's pastime, uh, baseball. So to see that fairness in the system, um, a great example is the 1960 World Series. So it, it was a great game, went to seven games, um, it was, you know, against the Pittsburgh Pirates and the New York Yankees. And how it played out is that the, um, the Pittsburgh Pirates won um, a, four of the games and the Yankees won three of them. And but if you counted it by games, like the rules of baseball say, um, they won by four to three games. But what the popular vote is kind of like um, is if you counted the number of runs. So the, the difference would be that the Yankees, over the course of the entire World Series, had gotten 55 runs, but the Pirates had only gotten 27. But those who know baseball, you know, sit and watch through the whole game. And how it played out were these really tough, close nail biters that were the four wins by the Pirates. Whereas, yeah, the Yankees games, they won blowouts, right? Like yeah, six yeah. three. So something. they got so many, um, so many runs in those three games, but it was kind of a fluke. So if you're, you know, care about who has the skill to push through, you know, somebody who loves baseball would, you know, think it's fair that the team that pushed it out, you know, when both teams, you know, were, were there is the deserving winner. And that's what the Electoral College does by counting it by games rather than runs. Yeah, and, and interestingly, nobody questions who the legitimate winner of the 1960 World Series was. I mean, you know, it's everybody knows it's the Pirates. Nobody said the Yankees, well, I don't know, some people might, but very few people say, you know, the Yankees were robbed. They're the legitimate winner of the World Series, yet that's what you hear, um, you know, about Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, for example. Yeah, I think it's important to see that, you know, what's happening on the other side, the political campaigns, what they're doing is looking at all the numbers. How many people cast for me need I get to get to get elected? And they're calculating there's a different kind of calculation that results and actions that will follow if you're calculating electors versus calculating the, you know, 231 million in the country. You know, if you just had to go across the country, you know, and you're traveling around trying to get voters, wouldn't you just go to the most populous states? You know, the most, um, you know, uh, populous states are California and Texas. Yeah, you wouldn't go to, right, you'd only go to cities. You wouldn't go to Delaware. You wouldn't go to Wyoming. And, but they're Americans too. So, so the president and the vice president represent them. That's what the founders were concerned about, as, as Michael was saying. Well, there were those really small states, and then there were those really huge states. But the minority vote still counts in our country. And that's well, what I think, 
I think to go back to your baseball analogy, Maya, is that, you know, both the Pittsburgh Pirates and the New York Yankees in 1960 knew the rules of the game before they took the field. And Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, likewise, both knew the rules of the game before they entered the contest. And so let's just say we could go back, you know, we were to go back in time and magically conduct an election, that same election um, with the, you know, with, with a national popular vote. We don't know who would have won that election because if the rules were different, the candidates would have plotted their strategies differently. They would have campaigned differently. Like they would have played a different game. Yeah, like she so didn't she visit voters. Go, you, go you, ahead, you, Michael. <laughs> Sorry. Well, um, complimenting what Maya said, uh, Los Angeles County has more people than 41 of our states. New York City has more people than 39 of our states. And on Long Island, which is now part of New York City, has two counties, and one of those, Nassau County, has more people than 10 of our states. Um, in my presentations, I show a picture of Central Park, and I ask the audience how many acres. It's, nobody knows. It's 843, and I ask how many acres are farmed in Central Park, and they all laugh and say, well, no, they walk their dogs in Central Park, and they jog and play baseball. And then I show a picture of Whole Foods stocked to the ceiling with produce in downtown Manhattan. I see, I see, they, they don't farm in New York City, but they have all this produce. And then I show a picture of an Iowa farm. And I say, maybe that's why we start the process in Iowa because they feed the cities. It takes five acres to feed one person for a year. And if we only went by population centers, uh, 30 of our states would be serfs. Uh, half of our people are in nine states. And we have energy, we have copper and iron ore, et cetera, all of which contribute to the wealth of this country and to industry, et cetera. If you're, if you're building Caterpillar tractors or Ford automobiles and you don't have miners in some place in Montana or Wyoming or some other place getting the raw materials to build that, well, you're simply standing on an assembly line waiting for states that aren't part of uh, the uh, body politic in a robust way. So the founders knew that they needed uh, not only the cities to speak, but all the countrysides as well, because it's a big country. Yeah, to follow up on your, your sort of balancing act, right, between different interests in the country, trying to really get a temperature of almost of consensus, right, in the country, um, who can yeah. can get like very disparate groups of American life to to back them as a candidate. Um, we often hear as an objection to the Electoral College, and I, I feel like this one is just getting blown out by the evolving events uh, of politics. But we used to hear, at least very vociferously, um, that it was unfair because uh, th there were a few swing states, right? It used to be Florida, Ohio, mm -hmm. right? Um, maybe Pennsylvania. And that, that we had a few states and actually the Electoral College wasn't distributing mm -hmm. um, candidates. They weren't running their races for all of America. They were actually tailoring their campaigns to a handful of swing states because those mm -hmm. states were going to make the difference. Um, is that, is that a, a valid objection 
Um, or, or is, is this um, sort of swings, do swing states, I think the answer is obvious, but do swing states move over time depending on how the American population feels about political issues? Very good question. I grew up in central Illinois where we used to have Senator Dirksen and Senator Percy. It was a two-party state and Ronald Reagan was governor of California. And at the time that the South was considered the solid South, which was all democratic. So states are on the move. My gosh, they, they always have been. Nelson Rockefeller was Republican governor of New York. And, and um, 1972, Nixon held his Republican convention in Miami because he was afraid of losing Florida. And now it's a sure thing for Republicans. So, um, but the great thing about our country is if there is consensus in some states, but other states are still going through a divide, uh, divisions, and they haven't quite come up with their answer for the union. That's where the candidates go because that's where the debate is most robust. And the whole idea of a democratic republic is to try to do what the Japanese call nemawashi or root binding, which is to address the people who are at the center of debate. And so, yes, swing states are at the center of those debates. If you're a doctor, <laughs> you, you treat the patient that has the most critical uh, problems. If you're a, a politician, you go where the state is most um, sort of uh, robust in their disagreements and try to listen to that. You know, part of campaigning is not only talking, but listening and trying to understand what the differences are. And so the wonderful thing about our, our process is that, you know, when Bush v. Gore in 2000 happened, and the Supreme Court had to decide because it was a, a close race. It was 250,000 different, so it was not uh, widely different. We had 100, at the time, 150 million votes or something cast. But Bush won by five electoral votes, which is West Virginia at the time. And Gore didn't go there. And it's the same number of electors in New Mexico. And what that says to presidential candidates is, gee, if I can win or lose the presidency by five electoral votes, I better visit Maine and West Virginia and New Mexico and North Dakota and not just the big population centers, because we have now 180 million people voting. And it might be uh, one or two states that make all the difference. Florida gave us that wonderful or difficult example. Well, and as I, I think it's important to to notice that um, in swing states, as as Michael said, they can change, but it assumes that a candidate, um, you know, who they consider their base voters, will actually come out for them. If they're, you know, changing their views from, you know, what their their usual support are in the country. Um, will they actually still vote for them? The, you know, looking in past statistics and elections, um, the the races, um, McCain got more of Republican voters than Romney did in that presidential race. So the policies, if you go to centrist, maybe the the members of the party and, and, and you know in the coalition wouldn't. Two thousand twelve. You're yeah. saying McCain McCain had more. Um, yeah. So the, the, it really changes among um, the dynamic and uh, you vote with your feet in this country. There's a, a, a saying in, in um, political science. Um, that, that's another feature of our constitution. We use the census um, and that's the population. You've gotten new statistics in 2020 that will be applying in this upcoming race. 
And that's Americans' choice, where to live, where to move. Um, and then they register to vote there. Right. Right. That's right. We had seven U.S. US House seats moved to different states because of the last census. So, so it's, uh, it is a real thing. Um, and once in a while, uh, people will say, well, well, gee, we have um, lots of Republican voices that are not heard in California and lots of uh, Democrat voices that aren't heard in Texas because it's winner take all. And I asked them, you know, do you think the founders have a solution for that? And they do. Um, Maine and Nebraska disaggregate their electors uh, by congressional district. And in 2012, if all the states had done that, Mitt Romney would have defeated Barack Obama. So I like to say to people in California or Texas, if you're unhappy, go to your state capital and ask to disaggregate by congressional districts. I grew up in Illinois. Illinois has 112 counties. In 2016, Mrs. Clinton won 12 Illinois counties all around Chicago, and Mr. Trump won 90, 90 counties, but Mrs. Clinton won the state. If Illinois disaggregated by congressional districts, my gosh, Mr. Mr. Trump would have probably had five or six electoral votes. So if we do have a problem with, uh, uh, you know, the majority should rule, why not have the majority of each congressional district uh, decide these things and aggregate north to that? And so there are ways constitutionally you can do this without turning over the election to the federal government to run as a national popular vote. So that, that actually brings me to uh, another topic that I'd like to get into with you, Michael, which has to do with um, the national uh, popular vote interstate compact. But before we get to that, I do want to ask you to address one other critique of the Electoral College, which has become popular um, in recent years. And that is that the, the Electoral College is a vestige of slavery and and is part of a you know part of a system of institutional racism in this country. Can you sort of explain <clears throat> what that argument is and uh, why you disagree with it? Well, the uh, the slavery issue was was not even placed by name in the Constitution, as we know. The slave trade was outlawed after 20 years, which to his credit, uh, Jefferson signed the legislation to get that done. Um, the only other vestige really of, of this issue was the two thirds clause where the North and South argued about whether or not slaves who should be counted as a person and yet weren't allowed to vote. And uh, there's been a lot written about that, uh, but the, the Constitutional Convention uh, did not uh, break on slavery lines at all, but really small and large states uh, lines. This was the Connecticut Compromise. Roger Sherman, James Madison, and others came up with the, every state has two senators, the House is by population, the president will not be elected by the Congress, but have an independent voice and be a commander in chief. Uh, some delegates from the South voted against the Electoral College idea right. at different times of the convention. So this was, uh, slavery was always a... Let's be, clear about, let's be clear about what the reason was that, that some of the um, slave owners 
um, and slaveholding states voted against the idea of the electoral college. The electoral college system is based on representation. And um, the abolitionists didn't want the Southern states to be able to count their enslaved population towards their representation. In other words, these were people who couldn't vote. Therefore, the North didn't want them to be counted in terms of the number of congressmen that the South sent to Congress and didn't, you know, and didn't want those Southern states to have more power. If we had counted the slaves as, as representing, you know, in terms of representation, that would have given the slaveholding interest more power. And so it's kind of ironic that some people say, well, this is a vestige of slavery because what, you know, they always go back to, well, you know, African-Americans were only considered three fifths of a person under the constitution. That's not exactly right because basically they were, they were given the South some, some power for their enslaved population, but not a hundred percent. And so the electoral college was a slave holding, uh, it limited their power. It didn't, it didn't enhance it. So to say that somehow the electoral college is racist or promotes slavery, when in fact it did just the opposite, it, it limited the power of slaveholders. It's just, it seems sort of silly to me. To, yeah. to go to your original point, Jennifer, in, in the beginning of when we started this, this episode, right? This is the sort of myth that could only circulate in a country where civics education has totally collapsed yeah. because um, it is one of those sound bites that sounds good. Oh, like, you know, in the constitution, our founders only thought that slaves counted for three fifths of a person. Right. And the reality is if, if you were against slavery, you would want them to count for zero. And if you were in favor, you would have wanted them to count quote unquote equally um, for, for purposes of representation. Right. But it, it wasn't about one of those extremely it wasn't annoying. About, yeah. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't really about their humanity. It was about political power. And so to say that mm -hmm. they were making a comment about the slaves' humanity is just incorrect. That's not what it was. Right. I think you're exactly right. I think I said two-thirds. I meant three-fifths. Um, and then you wanted to ask about the National Popular Vote Compact. Yes, I do. Let's switch gears to that because um, basically, as as both you and Maya have mentioned, the Electoral College, it's, it's enshrined in our constitution. And so the only way to get rid of it technically is to amend the constitution. Well, there have been many attempts to get rid of the Electoral College by constitutional amendment and they've all failed. So now uh, critics of the Electoral College are trying to get rid of it through the back door with this interstate compact. and. It's a little complicated and seems a little constitutionally suspect, if you ask me. But why don't you explain that to us, Michael, and then we can talk about where, um, yeah. whether that's been successful or not. Right. Um, after the uh, Bush v. Gore, a man named John Koza, who is the inventor or has the patent on the scratch-off lottery ticket, a very wealthy engineer in California, hired uh, two or three professors to come up with a plan to get around the constitutional amendment to get rid of the Electoral College, which takes 38 states, which would never approve of that. Uh, 
And it, they came up in 2006. They launched the National Popular Vote Compact. What it says is the legislation, it's model legislation, so it's identical in any state that adopts it. It says no matter how the voters of our state vote, whomever wins the, quote, national popular vote, which, of course, no government entity aggregates that, only CBS News and Fox News and all the rest, um, that our electors will be told to vote for that, per that person that had the most national popular vote. 16 state legislatures have passed this now. Minnesota did it last summer. They have a 205 electors. They need 270 to create a constitutional crisis. And this is 100% um, 16 Democratic governors, 16 Democratic state representatives, uh, houses, and Senate. So it's a, a project of the Democratic Party, unfortunately. 98.8% uh, of the legislators who voted for these things are in one party. Uh, we don't like to be partisan about the, talking about the Constitution, but certainly this is a project of one party. We oppose that at National Popular Vote. Uh, we oppose National Popular Vote at Save Our States, and we testify and lobby and give speeches uh, on behalf of the founders and federalism as found in the Electoral College. Um, in the two runs at the amending the Constitution in the, in the recent past, from 1970, in the U.S. Senate, um, we had Eugene McCarthy, a Democrat, lead the charge in favor of keeping the Electoral College. In 1978, Daniel Patrick Moynihan led the charge to defend the Electoral College. So we had, in the 1970s, uh, President Nixon had endorsed getting rid of the Electoral College, so did President Carter both parties and two Democrats in the Senate really led the charge to defend the Electoral College. Uh, that was a very different uh, party than it is today, clearly. Uh, but that's some of the history. Yeah, it's interesting because um, you and I, Michael, works together uh, on trying to defeat this uh, national popular vote interstate compact from passing in Maine. And Maine is one of those states where you would imagine they would never in their right mind uh, endorse that because, as you noted previously, the population of Maine is smaller than the population of Los Angeles County. And so um, by going with a national popular vote, Maine would really be cutting off its nose to spite its face. And yet there, there were... Uh, activists in Maine who wanted the state to join the compact. Um, yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, um, generally, this is about power. This is about if you if, if you do this, they the other side of this issue thinks that they will always control whoever is elected to the to the presidency. This is one of the reasons we have an open border where yesterday 17,000 people came through the border without identification, et cetera. So um, uh, this is a, a real problem. The reason it has been defeated the last three or four years in Maine, ironically, is because they disaggregate their electors and they also use ranked choice voting. And of course, you can't have disaggregation of electors and ranked choice voting to ever have a total that would be part of a national popular vote compact total. And so their election system, ironically, doesn't uh, 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 jive 
with the language of the National Popular Vote Compact. We were in those hearings in their elections committee, and those Democrats really spoke against it because they're so enamored by how they, and I respect them, they've chosen their election system. I wanted to mention one other thing. Um, I, at the end of my talks, I show a picture of the Titanic sinking. I try to end on a positive note. And I say, if you remember in that movie, uh, when they hit the iceberg, the fellow who was on the ship, who was actually the designer of the ship, was on the ship and died in that sinking, uh, rolls out the blueprint and he says, to save funds, we did not close each container in this ship and therefore the water will spill from one to another and he predicted within two to three hours the ship would sink, which it did. The wonderful thing about the Electoral College, especially with our open borders and uh, different election laws in every state and all these litigation about elections is in 2000, when Florida was recounting, the other 49 states stood by and waited for them to recount. We didn't have to have a national recount. My gosh, it would be impossible. The litigation and the and the and then the equal protection of the laws. We had a national popular vote. Well, what about the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment, equal protection? Uh, three states don't have early voting, and we have 45 days of early voting here in Virginia, and and Maryland has 12 days of early voting, and on and on, and drop boxes, and and six states use only mail-in ballots, and we have no um, uniformity of elections in this country, so we would never have. Uh, equal protection of the election laws if we had national popular vote. This is why H.R. 1 was to nationalize our elections when Mrs. Pelosi was speaker, because they were trying to nationalize the elections in order to set the stage for this. So um, uh, the, the founders were very wise to know that these states needed to uh, be sealed containers where they ran their own elections and announced the totals. Well, one thing, Jennifer, when I was uh, testifying at, at state legislatures about election laws, I discovered there were, you know, the same activists that would come and it really bothered the, you know, local um, state legislators because they weren't even from their state. They were looking to get power at the national level and, you know, minority rights in your state, you know, that's what the founders wanted to protect against, you know, these activist groups just trying to, you know, uh, consolidate all the power and, you know, change the country without the consent of all the governed. Yeah, I mean, um, we're, we're running, we're coming to the end of our time together here, but I did want to ask one more broad question, both about the Electoral College, and I think it actually applies to a lot of the institutions our founders set up in the Constitution. Um, and I, I think if the, the, the most famous argument that uh, James Madison made, right, about the amb ambition being counteracted by ambition, right? The entire, the idea behind having not only three branches of government, but federalism, right? Um, all of these sort of checks and balances in our system. Uh, the idea was that institutional loyalty to either the state, um, whether it's a small state or a big state, uh, or the House of Congress that you were elected to, right? Um, that, that these institutional loyalties would essentially counterbalance each other um, and counterbalance the kind of political and ideological divisions that were bound to crop up both in the founders' time and, and today, right? Um, increasingly, it seems like ideological alignment and partisan alignment is more important than any of those other loyalties. So, for example, yeah. you don't 
the two houses of Congress, um, being jealous of the legislative power in the way that Madison predicted, right, vis-a-vis the presidency and the courts. Instead, you see more of a partisan, if, if the president is of the same party as a House of Congress, they're more than happy to pass off those those actual institutional powers as legislative powers to the president. Something similar may be happening here in terms of, of small states like Maine, right, being willing um, to, to pass off uh, the, the power that a system like the Electoral College gives them in favor of ideological or partisan goals. Um, do you have, I realize that that's a, a heavy question, but, um, you know, for both of yeah. you, how do you think we we start to re uh, insert these kinds of institutional loyalties or re um, invigorate those kinds of institutional loyalties to being a small state or to being a member of the Senate, right? Uh, because mm-hmm. it seems like those are in decline. Yeah. Well, I think it all starts yeah. with reading the Constitution. Um, there, there's a great wisdom in just the way our country was set up. The, the Electoral College, it's actually quite brief to read Article 2 and see how that process is we, we talked about today. And you see, this was signed by we the people, and you know they worked through their states, and they wanted to ensure that there was protection of minorities. So if we care about civil rights, we should be protective of our local interests, our you know local communities, because... Folks in Washington may have a very different perspective and might aggrandize our power and not, you know, think of the little guy out there who's still a U.S. citizen, but it doesn't have a voice anymore. So, um, very good question. Yeah, yeah, it's a very good question. I think a a couple of things have happened that are very important. most of the people of the founding generation never left their state their entire life. And maybe if they did, it was because they lived right next door. They were in Maryland, but they could go across to buy some corn in Pennsylvania or something. But it, but today, of course, um, we have this, we have the internet, which um, collapses time and space. Um, uh, we call it netizens now, people that, that are citizens on the internet and not in a country. So the whole, the technology life that we live right now, of course, we're in four different, I think three or four different jurisdictions right now on this. So we're, we're an example of this sort of crossing lines. Um, but also um, in the progressive era, the income tax, which nationalized uh, where the money came from, if you will, to Washington was a huge change. And the direct election of senators, the 17th Amendment, where we find 80% of the funds spent on U.S. Senate races come from outside uh, every state that has a Senate race for both candidates. So we've nationalized our tax base and we've nationalized our elections and our news media and Internet have sort of nationalized things. And COVID comes along. And my gosh, who's your governor? Is your church or your school open or not? It depends on your governor. Well, the state capital, what city is that? So um, ironically, federalism sort of kicked into gear because of COVID. And I think the best thing that could happen to us is have a debate about how much of our tax revenue should actually go to Washington. Maybe 25% of the income tax should stay in the state where it uh, where it begins, and maybe we should amend the Constitution to do that. But this, the founders were not for nationalization of things like this, and they really did believe that you have to disaggregate power. It says federal is ten and fifty one, 
And um, it worked for very long, but these progressive things and the, and the change in our media both have combined to nationalize so much. Yeah, I think I think that's that's a, a really good answer. A lot lot to chew through and think about. This is personally from my. I'm not going to speak for uh, the the law center, but personally, I'm against the 17th Amendment as well. So always happy to <laughs> happy to to hear repeal the 17th uh, thoughts. But no, I, I think that's that's very wise and a lot to chew through there. Um, I do, uh, if we're going to end in a moment, I just want to mention that. We at Save Our States, including myself, will give speeches around the country at no charge. We have a travel budget. So if a, if a school, a college, a group uh, wishes to have a speech, uh, we'll jump, jump on an airplane or get on a train or something and, and visit your community. Uh, I do this. I've done 130 speeches in the last two years. So we do it all, all over the country. Well, it's, it's greatly needed. They need you in every middle school in the country. I don't know if you can clone yourself that fast, Michael. Well, this, uh, this Thursday, I'm speaking at St. Albans School in Washington, D.C., and, and January 9th at uh, Oak Crest uh, Catholic School in uh, Virginia. So I do, do visit high schools as well, home schools, as well as universities and um, rotary clubs, et cetera. It's great fun. And um, not everybody agrees, but we have fun um, with a Socratic method of discussing it. Yes, yeah, so please do avail yourself of uh, Michael's whistle stop tour, a la Lincoln, all over the country, talking about the Electoral College and other issues. Um, we also have resources, of course, on this issue over at IW. Um, we have this this uh, Electoral College legal brief that will explain a lot of what we're talking about here in more detail. Um, we also have. Uh, electoralcollegequestions.com um, that answers a lot of your the questions you may have about the Electoral College. Um, and finally, thank you so much to our guests, Michael and, and Maya. Thanks so much for coming on At The Bar. At The Bar is a production of Independent Women's Forum. It's available for viewing on Facebook, YouTube, and IWF.org. You can also listen to it as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And with that, we'll see you next time on At The Bar. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you.